0: listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. I'm your host, Chris.
1: And I'm Stephanie. And if you're new to the show, this is not a spoiler-free podcast. Even though we are primarily discussing the fifth episode of the first season, we will be discussing it in the context of the entire first season. So if you have not seen the first ten
0: episodes, beware that there are spoilers ahead. And in this episode, we're talking about Conditions of Existence, which is the fifth episode of the first season. And... Uh, There's some interesting stuff that happens in this episode, which we pretty much say every episode, because there's always interesting stuff going on on the show. Um, Though I
1: have to say, though, watching this episode, it's a bit of a... I don't know, it's a bit of a breather, I guess. There's not a lot of payoff in this episode, as there had been in in the prior three. It kind of has to set up a bunch of stuff for episode six and episode seven, so this is a bit more of a slower paced episode than we had been getting. I think.
0: That is true. I, I think a lot of it, at least to me is that especially in episodes three and four, there's sort of a lot of Helena and Helena adds a lot of tension. <laughs> Cause I think we mostly just get um, the scene at the beginning, right? With Helena was there. Yeah.
1: That's, that's the only scene we get with her is at the very beginning when Tomas is stitching up her, her wounds and, and taking care of her.
0: Right, and, and so what what's sort of interesting about that to me is that they have following that the scene where somebody's creeping into Beth and Paul's apartment and you know they they show the boots and sort of the like the somewhat staggered steps. And for like a split second you're like, Is this Helena? even though you kind of know that it's probably not because she was just getting stitched up, but and then of course they reveal it's Paul almost immediately, but but there's that split second. That you're kind of like, wait, is this, you know, or is that just me? No,
1: no, I think they definitely went for that because he's wearing Helena's boots very similar to Helena's kind of army boots. But and, and I have to say, I kind of even wonder, especially the first step into the door, if that might not have been Dylan Bruce's feet because they seem kind of small for him. Maybe he just has dainty feet, but <laughs> but he takes a very small first step into the apartment, and, and I kind of wonder if that was actually Dylan Bruce.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Because, I, I mean, I, I thought that, too, because there's that whole moment where you're just kind of like, well, is it? But could it be? I don't know. <laughs> Which, of course, is the point. But
1: Right, right. So, yeah, we see Paul sneaking into his own apartment.
0: Weird, and <laughs> with the sort of odd, odd gait, oddly paced steps. Yeah,
1: yes, he's a tall guy, and he's taking very small steps, uh, and and then it's it's followed by uh, by sort of a confrontation between Sarah and Paul, and then another sex scene, which makes me uncomfortable <laughs> in the shower. Yes. I don't know. What do you What do you think about about that? The sex
0: scene in this episode, as with. Basically, all previous Paul and Sarah sex scenes, like, I'm not that comfortable with it. I mean, for various reasons, <laughs> but because they're, I mean, there there's often with them, especially this sort of element of like, whoa, because <laughs> like, it just kind of, they jump right into it. And but then there's that layer of deception, which makes everything, uh, extra uncomfortable
1: well and this is the first time that sarah is she initiates the sex just because she seems to want to have sex she's not trying to keep paul from figuring out she's not really beth what like what happens in the first episode this isn't paul sort of doing some sort of sex power play like he does is that episode three that he does that it's either episode two or three, and, and so this is the first time where we really see Sarah initiating sex with Paul. And while, of course, it's it's not very, it's very gray of her to use sex to coerce this guy that she's trying to con in in episode one. And this one, it's even, I, I feel like it's even more kind of like stepping over a line because she really had no, no good motivation behind the, besides the fact that she wanted to have sex. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to have sex. But this is a guy who doesn't know who she is, who thinks she's somebody else. And that kind of makes me uncomfortable.
0: Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But yeah, and, and it's sort of, I don't know, I, I guess I sort of amuse myself just in the sense that I don't remember if it was this scene in particular, if it was from the first episode, it seems like it must have been... This one, especially since they'd really established that there's the whole clone situation going on. And I was thinking, you know, it's a good thing that Beth or that neither Beth nor Sarah had like any tattoos or anything or significant wounds. I I mean, I remember thinking this, watching this scene the first time. And then, of course, that ends up coming into play later in the episode because Paul finds that she doesn't have the scar that Beth should have. Mm-hmm. At which point, I felt very smart <laughs> for having that thought earlier.
1: Well, and of course, the the uh, this you know the creepy sex scene it it leads into the the spooky dream sequence with all of the the medical testing and and this and that. And this is really the first confirmation we get of kind of the larger clone exper- experiment uh, that they're still keeping up with these clones on uh, regularly. And, and this is also where we get the really, the idea of monitors is really firmly introduced as in this episode. And I do like where Allison's like, I was right. You know, we have this character who seems really neurotic and kind of out of touch
0: in, in some ways, but Allison was right. Yes, Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that they're not out to get you. Mm hmm. Just because you're
1: paranoid doesn't mean you're not right sometimes.
0: Indeed. I I remember watching this the first time and seeing that scene where there are all the scientists and the electrodes and all that sort of thing. And like the first time you see it, you're you're just kind of like, what is going on? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Did I step into a different show or something? Even though it, of course, totally makes sense in the greater context, but We'd we gotten an email from Dan talking about how the show keeps sort of switching genres on us, especially at the beginning of the first season. And I think that's really what's happening throughout this episode is I think we're sort of introducing the conspiracy plot. And, and so I sort of, I, I really appreciate that in this episode that they sort of take the time to set it up, you know? Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> have Have I completely lost you?
1: No, you have not lost me. I just have no follow up. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, because because really up to this point, the the big plot re- involving the clones has been related to Helena. Somebody's killing the clones. We're not safe, and so Helena is m- m- not dispatched, but wounded and sort of taken out of the picture in this episode. And so it it gives some time for them to introduce this other elements of the clone plot, like, oh, even if Helena wasn't after the clones, they're still being monitored by whatever organization created them. Right. So we have, you know, the the introduction, we don't know that it's a, they haven't really talked about social experiments yet, but now we're getting a, a better sense of, not only were they a scientific experiment, but a social experiment as well.
0: But are we really getting that much of the social element in this episode? That's what I said. It's not so much in this episode. Oh, okay. But
1: the, the idea that they're still continuing to test them out in the world does, does suggest that there's, there's maybe a social element to it as well. But we don't have, they don't talk about that as specifically as yet. Okay. So I thought it was interesting when they started to first become suspicious of Paul after Sarah finds that electrode in her mouth. That always gets me, by the way, the, the coughing up of the electrode. Tatiana Mazzani does a very good kind of gag and it makes me a little queasy. So, <laughs> but, um, you know, when, once Sarah is, is suspicious of Paul and she and Felix are going through the apartment, Felix wearing gloves, of course. He always wears gloves when he burgles. I respect that. And they find. Why wouldn't you? I know, right? And they find the box that has Paul's purple hearts and photos from, I think he says Afghanistan and his gun. They find the letters that Beth wrote to him. And I think it's interesting when Sarah realizes what they are, Felix is like, Oh, I want to read them. And Sarah's like, no, 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 it's, it's private. And it's this, I mean, later she, she ends up reading them herself, but. I thought it was kind of an interesting moment of Sarah kind of being protective of Beth almost.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of, you know, something we've talked about in previous episodes that there does seem to be this, I, I don't know if it's necessarily, I guess it's a combination is what I'm trying to say. I think it's a combination of the fact that she's sort of discovering this family she didn't know she had. And the fact that she's being Beth right now, you know,
1: yeah, but it, it's it's just an interesting. It's interesting to me because here she's taken over Beth's life in such a complete way, but at the same time she kind of sees these as off limits, at least for the for the moment. Why do you think she ultimately decides to read the letters when she doesn't initially?
0: Well, I mean, that's what I'm saying though. Is I I think it's this whole she is protective of of Beth essentially, but I think it's one of those that that whole idea of walking a mile in someone else's shoes, <laughs> which seems weird, I know. But I-, I think it's the the idea that she's essentially living this woman's life. And I think part of it is curiosity. And I don't know, I-, I think maybe on some level, she sort of wants to get to know Beth, maybe. But I'm really just sort of speculating at this point. Yeah,
1: Because I, I think because it it seems to be finding information out about Paul is what ultimately leads her to delve into the letters to get a better sense of what was going on between the two of them. But I don't know. It seems in that moment when they find the fact that Paul has a handgun, that that's a fairly higher stakes moment and, and why that wasn't enough to make her want to read the letters to get a better sense of the, of the situation at that point. I don't know. I just, it's not entirely clear to me why she, why she is hesitant at first, but then reads them later. So if listeners have any ideas, what you think was the kind of the, the trigger that made Sarah decide to read best letters, I'd
0: be curious to know your thoughts. It could just be that she didn't want to read them with Felix. That's true.
1: That's true. So like Chris mentioned, we have Paul trying to be all, you know, sexy up on Sarah and realizes that she doesn't have a have a scar that Beth is supposed to have. And that clues him to the fact that, oh, this something might be going on here. And then we see him not tell Olivier that something is going on when Olivier comes to check in with him later. Why do you think that he keeps his suspicions to himself? Do you think he's mainly protecting
0: himself in that moment? You know, I'm not sure, but I, I do think that's part of it, because when he confronts Sarah at the end of the episode, he seems to think that it might be some test. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's sort of what he what he says to Sarah. He's, he says, is this a test? So, I, I don't know. I'm still sort of uncertain as to Paul's thought processes, I guess, during this whole situation. Cause I mean, it's clear that Paul doesn't trust the Neolutionists, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, they're blackmailing him. Good reason.
0: <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. Is you know, he he has good reason to sort of not trust anybody in this situation. So, I think I think there's just there's a lot of caginess going on. Mm-hmm. And I was actually thinking about this earlier that there's sort of this current of caginess that runs through sarah and sarah's family too which might be why sarah and paul sort of get along so well it's possible it's possible i
1: think it's unlikely but i do wonder if maybe he is also maybe even subconsciously being protective of sarah by not telling olivier that there's something wrong Maybe he's even being protective of Beth by not telling Olivier there's something wrong. But I think there's definitely an element of being protective of himself because it is his job to look after this woman and he realizes I've lost her. But, you know, the you bringing up the fact that it was a test. I, I do wonder, though, if if it might not have occurred to him. Oh, maybe this is the test that I'm supposed to tell them, oh, this isn't the right woman. <laughs> you know, I realized I, I'm not I'm you know, she's missing or she's she's different or whatever. But uh that doesn't seem to occur to him.
0: I don't know. Unless that is part of what he means and he just decided to confront her about it instead of Olivier. Olivier? Mm-hmm. In case it wasn't, because he does seem to actually like Sarah, which they mentioned several times in the episode. So Yeah, I mean, I do think there's an element of being protective of her in there with all the other stuff going on. Layers, Stephanie, there's lots of layers. True. And, you know, also in that scene where he confronts Sarah, I thought it was sort of interesting and kind of odd that his question to her upon confronting her, it's not, who are you? It's, where is Beth? Like, that's the first thing that he says. So why do you think that is? That's a good point. I had never really thought about it before.
1: But I guess maybe he's coming out of his sort of his prerogative to keep an eye on Beth. Like, that's his job. He's supposed to monitor her. And so his, I would imagine sort of from his military training, his first priority would be, I've lost sight of of the person I'm supposed to be looking after. Where are they? But that is a good question. Why Why not? Who are you? Especially since, you know, she looks exactly like her. Clearly, this would strike him as sort of a, an odd coincidence, right? You would think so. Yeah.
0: And also, there's the whole thing about how clearly he's been sleeping with her for however long it's been since the first episode. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, there's... I mean, I think once he figures out that it's her... Or that it's not Beth. Rather, wouldn't wouldn't you be curious about who it is that <laughs> that you thought was somebody else, but thought that that other person was acting? Weird? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. But but at the same time,
1: I I will give Dylan Dylan Bruce some credit in the way that he plays that that line. Where is Beth? He does seem to be suspecting the worst that that Sarah might have harmed her. And and so I, I I'm thinking maybe that's perhaps what is at the front forefront of his mind is that maybe something bad happened to Beth and because he does genuinely seem to have some care for Beth in this episode to me like he seems very upset to me when Sarah suggests that maybe the fact that he couldn't love Beth but he didn't leave her was partly why Beth killed herself he does he does seem right. upset by
0: that yeah I was thinking that too that. I think that's the clearest picture we've gotten of his actual feelings towards Beth, because it always did seem to play in this weird way the entire series up to this point. Because he's he's been kind of mean to Sarah, you know? Mm -hmm. Or Sarah as Beth, but except for when Sarah's more like Sarah. right (laughs) You know? So it's been revealing this episode, I guess, would be the... The way to phrase it.
1: Yeah, and this is probably the only time we really get a sense of Paul's feelings toward Beth, and not some sort of show he's putting on or something like that. And he did seem to to have some genuine care for her. Mm-hmm. Even if he didn't love her, he did seem to genuinely care about her, and not want her to be harmed, at least.
0: Yeah, because I think pretty much up to this point, Paul's just been this sort of Obstacle, I guess, for for lack of a better word. Because he's he's this figure that Sarah has to trick more more than anything else, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. he's been sort of this, you know, he comes in at inopportune times and she has to keep up the charade that she's Beth and... All this sort In of general- thing. And-
1: Gen- generally, she's like shooing him out of the house, you know?
0: <laughs> right. That's what I mean. Like he's... In a
1: couple episodes, he has barely
0: any scream time. Mm-hmm. Or he shows up at the police station and she has to keep him from talking to Art <laughs> and blowing her cover with <laughs> right. Art. Yeah. so right. So it has mostly been about keeping the ruse alive, I guess. But yeah, so so we didn't really get much of a sense of of Paul before this, to me, but I still think in subsequent episodes, I'm trying to think of a
1: time where he talked at length about Beth, and I don't think he ever really does. So, I don't know. To me, this this feels like maybe the most we get out of him in regards to his feeling toward Beth, or one of the times, at least, where we get the most out of him about that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, because they do talk some about his relationship with Beth, or, you know, his reporting on Beth in Episode... Seven. Seven, I want to say, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. It's mostly... Mostly this. And then we have the really, really excellent and really, really sweet scene where Kira and Sarah are reunited. And of course, Sarah walks up and, it's really me this time. And I I love the little searching look that Kira gives her. Like, she's assessing her. And then she's like,
1: I know. <laughs> Yeah, we have we have this again. Kira being able to differentiate between the clones. So far, she's the only one we've seen to be able to do that. And while it, it you know, it, it took me a moment to realize, not only is Sarah having to say it's really me because Allison visited her previously, but also because she's dressed like Beth. It, it kind of I forget that because we mostly see Sarah dressed like Beth in this this section of the series. And so, when it it occurred to me this time watching when Kira says, why are you wearing such fancy clothes? I'm like, oh, not only does she have to say it's me because of Allison, but she has to say it's me because she's dressed differently. Like, her hair is different, too.
0: hmm Yeah, I, I love that moment where Kira, like, immediately locks on to the fact that, how come you're, how come you're dressed nice? <laughs> <laughs> like, what's up with that, mom?
1: <laughs> and I like that she... We see Sarah and Kira talking here, and Sarah doesn't lie to Kira. Like, she doesn't tell her the whole truth, but she doesn't lie to her, which is kind of significant for the character because Sarah is pretty adept at lying and and will use it quite frequently. But when – because when Kira asks her, why are you wearing such fancy clothes? Sarah just kind of replies with, you don't miss a thing. You know, she doesn't actually try to go into it at all, but she doesn't try to give Kira some sort of made-up excuse either.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Of course, I love too that Kira asks her if, if they're in danger, basically, because she's really picked up on Allison's comment that Sarah was trying to keep them all safe. That's a pretty smart seven year old Mm-hmm. observant. Well,
1: yes, Kira is very smart. And then we also see Sarah making nice with us, with Mrs. S in this episode. We, you know, and, and I actually really like the moment where Sarah's saying thank you to her, and she touches Mrs. S.'s hand. And the way that Maria Doyle Kennedy plays that moment, it's this very sort of suspicious look that she gives Sarah's hand on top of hers. So it's like, she's not really, she's not being, like, you know, moved by this moment. She's like, what does she want from me?
0: (laughs) I think it's, it's surprise followed by suspicion. Yeah, yeah. And then as soon as Sarah does the, says the, um, I, I, Need to ask you something. And, and then, yeah, Mrs. S. is like, ah, there it is. <laughs> I actually, I, I was going to ask you, what do you think the significance of the shot of Kira in that scene is? Which shot? As they're having this discussion about Sarah's, like, I need to ask you about my history. Like, as she's saying this, they cut to Kira watching them have this discussion. hmm. Why? I don't know. It's significant because they, because they did it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I'm still, as I was watching it, I was like, "What is the significance of this shot? What am I supposed to be getting from this? Is it? Because I mean, again, we've they keep showing us how observant Kira is. So the fact that Kira is observing this, I was just wondering, wondering if you thought it had significance
1: i'm not sure that's a good question i do not have any immediate answers as to why why that shot was included but i do feel like we are even though sarah did want something from mrs s in that moment i i actually do feel like sarah was being genuine when she was saying thank you to her mm-hmm. and and i think this is definitely the beginning of their relationship thawing Right. And so perhaps that was just a nod to Kira noticing that as well. Like there's there's a change in the relationship between Mrs. S and and Sarah. But that's really the, the only guess that I have. Okay.
0: I just thought I'd run it by you. These are the things I think about upon <laughs> my whatever number I'm um, on rewatch.
1: Rewatch. Yeah. So Vic was not in the last episode, but he pops up again in this one. And he's, he's clearly not having a very good day here. He, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's like the whole incident with his finger. Though I do have a question about something. Back up but before I get to the finger. Sarah stole the drugs from him outside of Toronto because she was coming back on the train, right? Right. They had said that they were
0: in the United States.
1: Right. So I thought they were in the United States. And yet it looks like. Vic's supplier is in Toronto for that Coke. And that I've always thought, that seems kind of odd. I mean, I guess it's not impossible, but I would think the guy he would owe the money to would be back in the States and not in Toronto.
0: Hmm. I don't know what to tell you.
1: So that was just something that occurred to me on this this rewatch. It's not a big deal. But, you know, so we have Vic going to see Pouchy, his supplier, without money again. And the poor guy gets his finger cut off with, with what looks like
0: a paper cutter yeah it is a paper cutter yeah and yeah that that whole thing is it's horrifying and kind of funny yes and and that's impressive to me (laughs) because like i mean there's the scene he's screaming his head off during the whole scene as you would i would imagine the screen goes dark and then you hear i'm good and i crack up every time yes,
1: it it is it is quite funny the the I'm good that follows the blackout. And I also really like in regards to, you know, funny slash horrifying Vic, where he's in the the pharmacy and he's all bloodied and he's got his hand wrapped up in his shirt, and he
0: leans down to Allison's kids and says, "Stay in school." <laughs> the thing that gets me about that scene oh, is because they they bump into him. and I'm like, how is it that Allison's kids, Because you know that Allison trained them thoroughly with the don't talk to strangers, don't go near anyone who looks skeevy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know that Allison has repeatedly had this talk with their kids. When I say you know, I mean, in my mind, I know. (laughs) I can't imagine. Well, she tells them right before they go into the store, don't talk to anybody, you know. So clearly, this is something that she harps on them a lot about. One would think so. And I mean, it's Allison, Mm -hmm. you know. Because he's urban. Because, mm-hmm. come on, he's, yeah, because the bloody bandaged hand is, you know. yeah.
1: Well, to be fair to the kids, I think Vic has his back to them. when I know, I know. When they bump into him so they can't see how horrible he actually looks.
0: I know. But I still just have that moment every time where I'm kind of like, how is the Allison's kids are bumping into strange men, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because Vic is very strange.
1: yeah. And so he goes from getting his finger cut off to getting maced and tased by Allison. Because, of course, Allison carries both mace and a taser with her at all times. and
0: Like she's (laughs) Veronica Mars.
1: Like she's Veronica Mars. And I have a hard time kind of with this episode because I find Vic to be a fairly foul human being. But at the same time, I'm laughing at him and I feel a little bit sorry for him for, you know, having these bad things done to him. I don't know. Do you do you feel at all conflicted by by finding Vic kind of a laughable figure?
0: Um, not as much as you, I, okay. I guess, because uh, I laugh hysterically every time he gets tased. Because I always laugh when people get tased on TV because I'm awful, <laughs> but um, maybe not always, but a lot of the time. I will say one of my favorite things ever is is Veronica Mars tasering anybody. <laughs> but that's beside the point.
1: I don't know. It's just I I have kind of a pet peeve when shows try to take a, a, a character that they paint fairly villainous and then try to soften him up and make him lovable as if the previous bad things he did kind of get... We've, we're supposed to forget about them and i'm not saying they do this here with vic but i'm always sort of like wary about it like eh, is this making me like vic too much because i'm finding him funny i don't know but i think it's okay here because we're like laughing at his pain i was gonna say <laughs> it's it's
0: not that they're making vic likable so much as it is that they're letting us enjoy his torment
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is yeah. a
0: very different thing indeed
1: <laughs> indeed And the pain is not is not over for Vic, because in the in in the subsequent episode, he gets the nail
0: through his hand from Paul. So they, they do torture Vic quite a bit. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's I think I'd feel weirder about it. Or maybe maybe I feel weird about it in the sense that I am kind of enjoying another human beings torment, even though he's a fictional character. Because that always makes you feel a little weird about yourself. But what does that say about me that I'm enjoying watching horrible things happen to Vic? But again, I mean, but Vic is not a nice do... person. Exactly. You know, it's it's that whole uh, comeuppance thing. Because because we do know I enjoy that. And I
1: got to give credit to Michael Mando because I think in this episode we see him have to play a very very broad comedy. At the beginning, and then at, but at the same time, when he shows up at Felix's loft and he catches Sarah, I feel genuinely worried for her. Like he still comes off as threatening Mm -hmm. later on, even though he's been a bit of a clown of a character in the beginning of the episode. Mm -hmm. And I find the the conversation that we get between Sarah and Vic in this episode kind of fascinating because. She, we see Sarah telling him that she's not proud of what they did at Myrtle Beach. He's, you know, being all reminiscent of the, the good old days as he sees them. And she tells them, you know, we were parasites. And I wonder if the Sarah we met in natural selection in episode one, if she would have had that same viewpoint on Myrtle Beach or if she has evolved in her thinking of, of how she and, and Vic were, were conning people and using people back in those days.
0: Yeah, I I had a moment of that, too. I I kind of don't think that she had the same view as Vic, but I don't think she would have had the view that she has now. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Like, I I think it really, I think all this stuff has pushed her further into or further out of that life that she had with Vic.
1: Because I I think we, I think this is a moment of sort of character development for Sarah, even though she... Begins the episode, you know, sleeping with Paul and doing some, you know, not very nice stuff. I, I, this does feel like a kind of a moment of growth for her out of that old lifestyle and maybe into a, a different one.
0: Right. And I mean, it's it's all part of this growth that we've seen from earlier when she decided not to take the money and run.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and and we continue that, too, with the scene with with allison where sarah asks for some of the money back to use and allison gives her the twenty thousand which of course is what she had originally planned on getting for the cocaine Mm -hmm. she's gonna get the twenty thousand dollars and run with that and that's exactly how much she asks for and basically just hands it over to vic to get rid of him
1: Yeah, it never even occurs to her in this episode to try to take care and run, that she's completely at a different point. Right. Than she was in the beginning in regards to that. Exactly. So speaking of Allison, (laughs) I do quite enjoy Allison's storyline in this episode with her being suspicious of Donnie.
0: Indeed. I I always am curious, though, why she immediately suspects Donnie. What kind of relationship are you having (laughs) Where your immediate suspicion is cast upon your husband, you
1: mm-hmm. know. Yeah, well, definitely, we've seen evidence that their marriage is perhaps not particularly happy. You know, we see we see Donny get rebuffed on his his sexual advances, which always makes me giggle, where she slaps his hand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so you know, <laughs> no, clearly, no groping yeah. for you. <laughs> you know clearly not not the greatest marriage but yeah that's how what type of person are you or what where what is the state of your marriage that you automatically suspect your husband whom
0: she's known since they were teenagers right and i mean there's the whole thing what is it episode 3 where they go Allison goes to teach Sarah how to shoot mm-hmm. and she she asks Donnie if he can watch the kids and Donnie's like no i have to or I'm going golfing.
1: <laughs> no, actually what he says is he says golf. And then she asks him on TV. And no, no, then he I know. says, no, well, well, I'm making a point. And okay. then he says, no, I have a tea time. And I, I actually think I didn't, we didn't talk about it in, in that episode, but that's actually a very sort of telling moment. I think about their relationship, the fact that Allison would think he would say he couldn't watch the kids because he'd be watching golf on TV. That's kind of sad.
0: Right. No, I know. But I mean that's that's what I'm getting at here too is that you know, I, I I think this also contributes to my whole I think it's kind of weird then that she immediately suspected him, you know? Like if he's if he's apparently lazy enough in their marriage to not watch the kids because he's watching golf on TV, why is it that she immediately suspects him of being motivated enough to spy on her? <laughs> or is that just so like a weird statement on my part i don't know no
1: i don't know but i i guess in in alison's way of thinking she has known him a long time so if the idea is that they're trying to keep an eye on the subject for an extended period of time besides her parents donnie's probably one of the people she's known the longest so um that might be a big reason why i suppose so Allison is, you know, searching all over her house, trying to find evidence of Donnie spying on her in this episode. And it kind of comes to a big confrontation in the garage when she finds the metal box with the lock on it. And the even though I've seen this episode, I don't know how many times... Every time it gets to that point where, where suddenly the garage door is opening and Donnie's driving in to park his car, I always expect Allison to put the box away and try to pretend she was doing something else. I'm always surprised that she's just like confronts Donnie with the box in that, in that moment. But Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I, maybe I should know Allison better by now. (laughs) But I'm just always surprised in that moment.
0: I like how she sort of aggressively Closes the garage door because, of course, there's no definitive way to close a garage door because it's an automatic door opener. Mm-hmm. So she sort of like slams the the button. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it cracks me up that.
1: And she clear and she does it while he's still standing outside. Like it's a very passive aggressive. Like
0: you need to come inside right now. <laughs> right. Was well, it's, it's like she wants to slam the door, mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's no way to slam to a it. garage yeah. door, <laughs> right? Or an automatic garage door. So. That always cracks me up and and that he sort of jumps inside. And the thing that gets me too about this whole thing is, okay, Donnie's talking about, you know, not being able to have any privacy and all this sort of thing, but his solution is to put his porn DVDs that he had in his closet, he, he puts those in the lockbox as if that's supposed to fool Allison. But why does he not assume that she'd already looked in their closet if she's, like, trying to break into his lockbox in the garage?
1: Well, because he does ultimately tell her a story that it was letters in the lockbox. So maybe he sort of had that plan in mind anyway. Like, he knew it was just sort of a temporary stopgap to put the, the porn films in the lockbox, but he needed to do something in the meantime. So, but yeah, I mean, I suppose it, it would be naive of him not to think that she found the the big blue blowies
0: <laughs> right in his closet beforehand. That's what I'm saying, though. The t- I'm agreeing with you. <laughs> I know, I know you are. I'm okay. just oh, Donnie.
1: <laughs> but we also get a great shot of their garage in this episode, and I am just fascinated by the mounds and mounds of food that Allison has stockpiled in there. Yes. And
0: <laughs> I, I do think that's the results of Allison's extreme couponing. <laughs> Cause, I mean, because she was serious about that couponing in whichever episode that was episode three, maybe she was like aggressively clipping coupons.
1: Two. It was episode two. Cause she is couponing okay. when she calls Sarah to tell her to come to her house that evening.
0: Okay. My point being, she was clearly very serious about about the coupons and um now we now we know what happens when she does that. <laughs> and I think it's
1: also evidence as we see in the next episode of her needing to be able to entertain large groups of people fairly regularly because you know there's all sorts of like chips and sodas and and things like that. So I, also evidence probably
0: of the, the the her social expectations. True. That and or she is one of those people who's preparing for the apocalypse.
1: That is also a possibility with Allison. <laughs> and I got to say, because we, we talked in our monitor episode, uh, that really of the three monitors we've met so far, with, with Paul, Donnie, and Delphine, Donnie's really the best at, at what he does, even though Allison is suspicious of him here. I, I got to admit, Donnie's pretty smooth. When, and maybe he wasn't talking to the the clone experiment guys, but you know, when when Allison comes upon him in the bedroom and he's talking on the phone about how, you know, one week it's she's fine and the next week it's Armageddon, I feel like he wiggles out of that situation pretty well.
0: Yeah. I'm always still suspicious of him though, what with the looking for the scissors, which were in plain sight. Oh, I
1: do that all the time, though.
0: (laughs) Okay. Yeah, it's not like I've never done that. But still, I just...
1: I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's a lot better than I would have done, I think. I I would have probably frozen a bit more in that situation.
0: Well, he's been doing this for quite a while. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I'm just saying, Donnie, not as stupid as he initially seems.
0: (laughs) True. Very true.
1: But, and it is interesting that we see him burning something in this episode, but they still don't reveal officially that he's a monitor until the, the end of the season. It almost got, gets to the point where you kind of forget, or at least me personally, I kind of forgot that they were that blatant in this episode, that he was clearly hiding something from Allison. Um, so I, I kind of almost forget about that by the time they
0: officially reveal, oh, he knows Leaky. Yeah, I never forgot. <laughs> but there's that moment towards the end of the season where they haven't brought it up again right where you kind of start going did, like you you start questioning whether or not it happened the way you remembered it happening cuz mind you this was before it was on DVD and you could check mm-hmm. <laughs> and so i was like that happened right? like a month ago right didn't yeah. it and yes it did <laughs> But yeah, it it was kind of funny because, I mean, when that episode aired, when they finally revealed that he was, I remember seeing a lot of people on the internet like, Donnie was a monitor. (laughs) And I'm like, I know they pretty much said so in episode five, because he was burning stuff and he was on the phone. Right. If if it was just that he was burning stuff, you could have written it off as the explanation that he gives in the next episode. Mm hmm you could but he was on the phone and he was like no i'll take care of it or whatever he says i don't remember but mm-hmm. it. it's like it's just too suspicious to not be something mhm but yeah they do wait it out quite well
1: so kasima has a nice little storyline in this episode kind of kickstarting her separate storyline she's not just being giles here and we we meet our other our third monitor, Delphine, and the nerd flirting commences. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Yay for nerd flirting with Kasima being impressed by Delphine's killer grades.
0: <laughs> because really, what's more impressive than that?
1: It's true. And so I-, I ended up looking this this up because I was I was watching this episode with my partner, and my partner was suspicious of Delphine's. R- Report card, her transcript, because it has the, the letter grade notations on there. And some of the, some of the grades that Delphine got were indicated as an A plus. And my partner was saying, Oh, they, the, how did Cosima not know that that was fake? They don't have A pluses on university transcripts. But so I did research and clearly as you do. the, as you do, and clearly that transcript came from. Delphine's French University, from what I can see, you know, it was probably the US grading system translation of what her French grades were. And in France, their grading system is on a scale from 1 to 20. And generally, people are awarded between 1 and 15.9. Like that's sort of the standard grade range. If you're awarded a 16 and over, that's very, very rare. And so if you are scored in that little section, that is interpreted in the U.S. grading system, as an A plus, so it is possible to get an A plus when you're translating French grades to the U.S. system. Interesting. So there you go. <laughs> I found that on the Fulbright website, which is a fairly prestigious website. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with they know what they're talking about. So apparently, the info
0: is legit, is what yes, you're saying.
1: Yes, I mean clearly that was a fake transcript, probably because even if those were Delphine's real grades, she would have. She already completed her degree, so the dates would probably be wrong, but uh, clearly they're trying to indicate that Delphine's super-duper
0: smart. <laughs> Which, let's hope so, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was just going to make a random comment that I remember my first semester of college and being very confused by the the report cards. <laughs> it's like, four? What?
1: What? <laughs> yeah. And I actually never, the only letter grades I got were A, B, C, D, F. But my partner w- went to university at SMU and they do d- do A minus B plus. They do minus plus grades, but the highest grade you can get is an A. So that's why my partner was suspicious thinking, what is that A plus doing there? That's not right. But ah. you can, in fact, get an A plus if you're if you're really smart in France.
0: <laughs> that is the other weird thing that it's not standardized because you'd think it would be standardized. But no, they just switch stuff over when you transfer. Mm hmm. But that's all side note stuff. <laughs> we were talking about Casima and, we were, and nerd Delphine flirting.
1: and the nerd flirting, and clearly just Casima being cooked by the Enchanté.
0: Because <laughs> why wouldn't you be? And the hair. Delphine's got great hair. Indeed, she does.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, I thought it was interesting. Delphine said she studies host parasite relationships. And of course, the word parasite, this is the second time we're hearing it in the episode. Or is it the first time?
1: And so, uh, or I don't remember chronologically speaking, but but Sarah does mention that she and Vic were parasites. So perhaps Delphine is, a, you know, one of the parasites she's studying is Sarah, but actually, we of vindication, probably not. They don't seem to know about Sarah back at uh, the Diet Institute.
0: But I just thought that was interesting that mm-hmm. that particular word shows up twice in the script for this mm-hmm. episode.
1: I also am quite charmed by the abbreviation Evo Devo.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) And I'm curious, if they probably did not make that up for for the show, but I had never heard that before. Then again, I'm not a graduate student in science, so what do I know?
0: (laughs) I was going to say, how many evolutionary development uh, students do you know, though?
1: None. I know Cosima, and that's it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, me too. I do love that, that they had that moment where at least Delphine didn't automatically know what it was, or it took her a second. Yes. So she could explain it to the audience.
1: (laughs) Yes. I like her sort of like thinking face where she's kind of like, I'm not ready to admit. I don't know what she's saying. I'm trying to process. I got it.
0: Oh, Delphine.
1: So there was not much Felix in this episode. And in my opinion, there was not enough Felix in this episode. Is there ever enough Felix in an episode for you? Yes. (laughs) Okay. there, are, there's, there can never be too much Felix, but there are episodes where there's a sufficient amount of Felix and then episodes where there is not a sufficient amount of Felix. And this was one of those episodes.
0: Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yes, and, and once again, we have a scene of Felix telling Sarah to not answer her phone. And once again, Sarah answers her phone. And then I forget
1: what what is on the other end of the phone. It's oh, it's Raj. It's Raj. It's Raj. You mm-hmm. forgot Raj
0: <laughs> for like a split second. <laughs> a second.
1: <laughs> and I will admit, whenever Raj is on the screen, I do say hi, Raj, and it makes my partner laugh at me when she when she overhears me.
0: <laughs> I would also laugh if I was there. It's, it's fair. That's fair. Instead, I will laugh at you now. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: I like that we have the return of Colin, who I think is adorable and nerdy and kind of weird in a charming way. And this is, you know, a nice example of we talked about sort of how the LGBT characters are portrayed on the show. And and we like that Felix is a character who might typically be kind of desexualized. But, you know, we do get to see him have a a little tryst with, with Colin here. And it's just a tryst for him. It's not a client or anybody like that. And they share a nice little smooch in the doorway. And I just think they're adorable. And I and I want to see Colin again.
0: I did have a moment when Sarah is walking up the stairs and, and sees him and hides. Mm-hmm. For like a split second, I was like, why is it that Sarah's hiding? She doesn't know who that is. She She didn't go to the morgue. And then it dawned on me, because they show her face as she is listening in on their conversation, and and one of them mentions the morgue, and then Sarah's face does a thing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, she didn't realize it was Colin from the morgue, because how would she know? But just hiding, because, you know, anybody who knows Felix would likely know her, or know that she had, quote-unquote, died recently, so...
1: Yeah. It might also be, because it just occurred to me that she was maybe, it might have been a client of Felix's, and it's probably bad form for your sister to show up as (laughs) a client is leaving. Um, So I also thought of it more as just, like, respecting Felix's space, and perhaps it was not an appropriate time for her to to walk up. Right, but I mean,
0: I, I think, well, I mean, he has paintings of her in his loft, too, so since she's supposed to be dead... Because there was like an urgency to her hiding, you know what I mean? Because if it was just mm-hmm. respecting his privacy, she could have just like casually walked in the other direction. But no, she rushed to hide. Know what I mean?
1: I think it works in either case, personally. But okay,
0: am I so overthinking?
1: Then- no, 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 no. <laughs> I just i I don't know that personally. I don't think her- the urgency precludes my possibility. So okay. So in this episode, we get a really good glimpse of a sign just outside of Felix's loft that says uh, Gallery Rimbaud. And then it's also written in block letters over his window. So when the sun shines in, you can see that it. he has a sign that says the same thing inside of his loft. And somebody mentioned the other day that they didn't know who Rimbo was when they were watching the show and they had to look it up. And so I thought I would mention, since we get a really good shot of both of those those signs in this episode, who... Rimbaud is in case you do not know. So Arthur Rimbaud was a French poet who is considered very influential and he's kind of a unique creator because he wrote all of his poetry while he was a teenager and he gave up his creative writing by age 20. So a lot of people think oh he he you know he gave up writing because he died. No, he just stopped writing. And he's also very well known for having had a very torrid love affair with an older poet named Paul Verlaine and he they were involved with a lot of drinking of absinthe and hashish, and it was a very kind of libertine, debauched lifestyle. And eventually it got to where Paul Verlaine shot at and wounded Rimbaud, and that eventually led to him being imprisoned and, and the end of, of their relationship. So clearly a very tumultuous affair. And so I think it's interesting that Felix evokes this idea of of Arthur Rim- Arthur Rimbaud in his loft. Um, hopefully, Felix does not meet the same fate, <laughs> but perhaps gives us maybe an insight into Felix's ideas about life and art. Interesting. Did you know who Rimbaud was when you? I were? did not. No. Okay. I I had a I don't know. If, well, I guess I do. I have a, a a minor in French from college, and so I was familiar with his poetry through that. But uh-huh. he's 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 fairly. He's fairly famous. I think he's technically, I don't know that he's a symbolist, but he's kind of at the end of the symbolist poet. I think he's considered like a decadent poet. Um, his poetry is quite good. It's, it's very metaphorical and lots of symbols, clearly, because he, you know, symbolist. Um, but, uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> but he has a couple of artist statements where he he wrote to other poets to say, oh, this is my idea about art. And it's a lot about how a poet is supposed to be a seer, a kind of a visionary. And in order to, to do that, he was attempting to do that through a complete derangement of his senses, which is perhaps why he lived so sort of like hard and wild. So perhaps that is a, a philosophy of art that uh, appeals to Felix. Makes sense.
0: I buy that. Well, thank you for that. You're welcome. Insight. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so as we mentioned earlier, Helena is only in the one scene at the beginning of the episode, sadly. And we get the glimpse of Tomas stitching her up, which is upsetting to me. (laughs) Because of all the blood, or what? I don't know, I just find that whole scene upsetting. Well, it is quite creepy. Yeah, it's creepy, and like, who is this dude, and... And really, once you find out who he is, that doesn't help any. (laughs) Because that dude's upsetting. Guess I just called Tomas a dude. (laughs) So I did have the thought when I was rewatching
1: of uh, Helena's wound that she receives from Sarah. That's in her right side, correct? Uh, Yes. Yeah. And when I was watching, it occurred to me if the wound was perhaps supposed to be somewhat symbolic if not necessarily to the audience maybe to helena of jesus's wound to to his side that he receives during the crucifixion usually it's portrayed a little higher on jesus kind of below his his ribs but it's still it's always on he was wounded on his right side and so i do kind of wonder if if that's part if that's somewhat symbolic to helena
0: entirely possible i also think it's kind of Symbolic in that scene, too, that, you know, here we've had Helena in white, and Tomás is all in black. And of course, the 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 set that they have with Tomás and Helena, it just looks filthy, you know? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was kind of an interesting choice to make, given that it is, you know, they're supposed to be these religious fanatics, and it seems incongruous to have such a filthy home base you know mhm cleanliness being next to godliness and all and also the fact that helena's constantly wounded it just it bugs me it bothers me apparently is that just weird of me
1: no i i am concerned maybe that's why the scene is upsetting to you because you see him doing this like medical procedure in a in a dirty what we find out later is about it's non-sterile and and that that creeps you out
0: (laughs) it does and and you know her her base in the church or whatever it was was also pretty filthy yeah and and the fact that she's often got wounds or pretty much always since she's always carving up her back it just Mm -hmm. it upsets me i worry for her you know i know i know but yes, the whole thing with the the black and the white, because of course, white is often symbolic of, of innocence. And so I, I just, there's always this sort of, I guess, sense of Tomas being like the corruptor of the innocent.
1: Definitely. Because I, I, I think the way they shoot the scene, even though... Tomás is helping her, he's still a bit of a, a a shadowy, malevolent figure, and we don't really know what to think about him.
0: Right. Especially the way the last episode ended, where he pets her head as he scoops her up. Because, like, who is this guy? Right? And it's just, you don't know what to think, but you think it's probably not good. <laughs> right. Or at least that that's my my thinking.
1: So just a couple other little things that I noticed in this episode. We've mentioned in the past that there, the show likes to sort of have clones repeat each other or to have them sort of do similar actions, have like one clone do it and then another clone do it. So at the beginning of episode four, where Kasima is looking at Helena's knife, she says, I'm not going to get it quite right, but she says something like, wow, rich man, where she's looking at the knife and in this episode where Allison and Donnie are fighting and Donnie says something like, I'm entitled to a little bit of privacy even in this house. And Allison replies with, coming from you, that's rich. And that might not be necessarily intentional, but I did, I did notice that we had clones kind of using the same word in a not usual way in two episodes back to back from each other.
0: Hmm. I totally and, missed it.
1: And Allison was not on that call with Kasima, so you couldn't just talk, chalk it up to, oh, you know, Allison heard Kasima use that word recently, and so maybe that's why she used it, but she was not involved in that video call. hmm And then the other thing I noticed about this episode is there's tons and tons of reflections. Like, the... Entire scene with, with Olivier and Paul, all of the shots of Paul are, are his reflection in a window in his office. And, you know, we have the, the reflection of, of Sarah in the bathroom when she's getting ready and like the electrode and, and there's just uh, then the reflection of, Delphine and Cosima in the hallway before the nerd flirting commences. So there's just lots and lots of reflections in this episode in particular. But thinking about it, there's tends to be quite a few reflections in this show in general.
0: Which, of course, I mean, it makes sense in the show in general just because it is about, I was going to say duality, but it's really beyond duality. Plurality. But, <laughs> Plurality. <there you> go. <laughs> That is a better word choice, yes. But I think it's especially appropriate in this episode. And it is, you're right, it's very noticeable in this episode. But this is also the episode that introduces that idea of more people being not who they appear to be. Because, I mean, it's always been Sarah. Sarah's always been the one to be somebody else. And yes, there are the other instances of, you know, Helena pretending to be Sarah pretending to be Beth or Allison pretending to be Sarah, but I mean, there's the monitors mm-hmm. that idea being introduced in this episode, so it, there is this sort of extra element of, I, I guess, like the double agent that kind of idea. Well, and I think the the scene with Paul and Olivier
1: it works just shooting Paul's reflection because it's not a perfect reflection of Paul. It's a little fuzzy. And so visually it works, I think, pretty well in that scene because Paul's being dishonest with with Olivier. It's both this idea of Paul isn't exactly who he says he is, but also Paul's not being genuine to Olivier in that moment either. So, But but yeah, it, it makes sense that there's a lot of reflections in the show, but this idea that, oh, this is something that looks exactly like you, but it's not
0: you. Mm-hmm. It's all... Duality and double crosses and whatever. Mm-hmm.
1: So let us know your thoughts about this episode. We would we would love to hear them. You can go and leave a comment on the show notes for this episode over at tatianaiseveryone.com. dot com. You could also send us an email to feedback at TatianaIsEveryone dot com, or you can call and leave a message on our listener voicemail line at 972-514-7223.
0: And we're also on Twitter at T I E Podcast. This week, Alison's Spycam and Delphine's grades were played by Tatiana Maslany. Thanks for listening.